Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Exodus chapter number 21, the book of Exodus in chapter 21 this evening. We began now uh, a study walking our way through the book of Exodus. We finished up the Ten Commandments a few weeks ago, and then we finished up the end of chapter number 20 last week. Man, where Moses says in verse number 20 of chapter 20, Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you that his fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. And we talked about, man, there was this right understanding of the fear of the Lord that we were supposed to have. And there is a wrong understanding of the fear of God, that we are not to tremble in, in God's presence, but that we can come boldly into God's presence, but that we should also fear the Lord. And in fearing the Lord, that is the beginning of wisdom. That's what, that's what Solomon says in the book of Proverbs. So now we're continuing on with our study in uh, Exodus. We are now in chapter number 21 and verse number one down to verse 11. Let's stand one last time, stretch our legs out of respect for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 21, verse 1 to verse 11. Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. Okay, so this is very important to understand. This is God still saying these laws to Moses. So sometimes we think, well, when God gave the Ten Commandments, he scripted into the tablets of stone... Moses went down, and then it was done, right? No, but God is still on the mountain. That's why it was still trembling. That's why it was still shaking. God is still on the mountain, and he's giving now further instruction to the children of Israel. What we would understand as the law of God, he's giving now to the children of Israel. So verse 2, If thou shalt buy an Hebrew servant six years, he shall serve thee. And in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. And if he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. And if his master hath given to him a wife, and she hath borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, well, I love my master, and my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Well, then his master shall bring him in unto the judges, and he shall bring him to the door or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an owl, and he shall serve him forever. And, another law, and if a man sell his daughter to be a maidservant, well, she shall go out as she shall not go out as the men's servants do. If she please not her master, who hath betrothed her to himself, well then, then shall he let her be redeemed. To sell her unto a strange nation he shall have no power, seeing he hath dealt deceitfully with her. Or in verse number 9. And here's another law. And if he betrothed her to his son. He shall deal with her after the manner of daughters. There's another law. Verse 10. 
and if he take him another wife? Well, her food and her raiment and her duty of marriage shall he not diminish. And if he do not these three unto her, well, then shall she go out free without money. Okay, so these first 11 verses deal with an understanding of how God's people were to interact with those who were um, in servitude or in service. Okay, so that's what these laws are. You're going to go next week, we're going to go verse, um, verse 12 down to like verse 22, somewhere around in there. We're going to end there with how God chooses to institute the value of a life. If someone sheds a man's life, his life gets shed. The, the institution of capital punishment happening in that passage of Scripture right there. What do all these laws mean? What, what, what is the purpose of this? Because Exodus 21, 22, 23, they really kind of fill up there, but they are expanded. Now, how many of you ever read the book of Leviticus before, right? The book of the law, right? Leviticus, it takes these laws even farther. It gives even more meaning. It stretches them out even, even farther. In fact, one Bible commentator has said that there are over 630 laws of Moses. 630 laws like what we just read. If this happens, here's the law. If that happens, here's the law. Just out of curiosity, does anyone know how many laws we have in the United States? It's a lot more than 630, I promise you that, all right? Laws were necessary as a part of regulation and as a part of governing. So the laws were necessary as a part of regulation and a part of governing. But what do they mean for you and what do they mean for me? That's what we're going to try to unpack a little bit of that. But just by introduction this evening, we'll tackle these first 11 verses quickly. And then we'll be about the rest of the chapter. Let's, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to use your word in a powerful way in our lives. Father, teach us what, what the meaning of these uh, verses, these laws, these um, things to be observed. Father, th teach us the principles behind them. Father, that we might be all that you want us to be in our day. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, Amen. You want a really fun exercise? You should just do a quick Google search of the most unusual laws. The most unusual laws. Just, just one, just for fun. In Alabama, it is against the law to wrestle a bear. Did you know that? So don't even ask. Don't even try. In fact... If you wrestle a bear and survive, you better not tell anyone about it because it's against the law and you will be punished accordingly, right? This is a very large section about laws. There are three categories of laws according to, from God's word, and you should write this down somewhere because it, really, it will really help you in your Bible study. There are three categories of law that God gives, biblically, scripturally speaking. There's, it's not types necessarily, but it's categories. It's three categories of law. There's the first, there's the moral law. The moral law of God. The moral law of God reveals God's specific standard of behavior that he has for his people. The, the expectation that God has for those who belong to him. 
The moral laws, their, their principles of justice, of honesty, of mercy, of respect for one another, of respect for mankind, of respect for other things, for other people's possessions. So there is first the moral law of God. And the moral law of God transcends time. Okay, so thou shalt not bear false witness, or thou shalt not lie, is, is right or wrong, or is wrong to lie whether you live in 2019 or whether you lived in the year 19. It was still wrong to lie. It was breaking God's moral law. There's a, there's a second kind of law that you will find in the Bible. There's a second kind of law. Write this down. It'll really help you. There is a ceremonial law. So there is first a moral law. There is second a ceremonial law. Ceremonial law is all the law that was given that regulated the worship of God in Israel. So there's the moral law. Here's the standard God has for his people. This is the standard of behavior that God has for his people. There's the ceremonial law. So when you think ceremonial law, think all of the feast. Think all of the sacrifices. Think all of, of, um, uh, all of the law relating to the Ark of the Covenant. Right? This is ceremonial law. So all of the feasts, all of the festivals, all of the sacrifices, the, the Ark of the Covenant, everything they were to do, everything they weren't to do with, with those instruments of worship, they were ceremonial law, which led or regulated the children of Israel in their worship of God. So there's two kinds of law so far in the Bible, two categories, moral law, second, second ceremonial law, third, Civil law. So, really interesting section. You walk through the book of Leviticus. There's a really interesting section. It's like, if a piece of the roof of your house falls off and lands on your brother who is passing by your door and it hurts him, it is your civil obligation to make sure that all of his needs are taken care of. Did you know that? That's actually like a law in the Bible. That was not State Farm's idea. That was, that was God's idea, okay? Is it, if, if a piece of your house falls, if, if your oxen, right, so your, your, uh, your vehicle gets out of control and goes running down the road and knocks over your neighbor's fence and your neighbor's cattle get out, it is your responsibility because that was your oxen. It's your responsibility to replace his na your neighbor's fence, but it's also your responsibility to buy him all the cattle that got out because your cattle was wild. You know, that's actually in the Bible. It's, actually, it's, a, it's a, one of the civil laws that God gives that regulated the way that the children of Israel were to, do, uh, were to do life. It regulated the way that the children of Israel were to treat each other and live as a people. So immediately we have a couple questions. Why would God take his time in order to institute these kinds of laws? Why, why would God care about insurance claims, right? Why would God care about property boundaries? You know, there's actually a penalty in the Bible that if you're stealing your neighbor's land and then you get found out, there's actually a penalty about that in the Bible. Why would God 
take his time and, and write these laws and well, for several reasons. You have to first remember that this was given specifically to a people who had never been a people. This is being given to a group of people who up until this point in history had never been a group of people. And so they don't know how to do life. They don't know what rules they should follow. They don't understand the, the sorts uh, of, of, of regulations that civilized forms of uh, civilized societies have, right? So, so imagine never knowing what, what, uh, what side of the street you were supposed to drive on. Imagine never knowing that stop, stop signs mean stop and crosswalks were where you walk and green lights mean go, right? Imagine never playing the game as a little kid, red light, green light. And so now, now, now like you're driving. It's the first time ever driving. You're on the wrong side of the road. You hop up onto the curb. If you've been to the Philippines, you know what that's like, right? No civilized law as it relates to how you navigate traffic, right? Just as, however you can get there, eh, 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 get up on the curb and get there, okay? So I'm, like, this is the way God is saying, this is the way that my people need to interact. These are the things that my people need. These are the things that will help life go better. Three kinds of laws in the Bible, moral, ceremonial, civil. And here's what you need to know. Jesus fulfills all the law. Jesus fulfills all the law. Jesus does not just fulfill, man, that moral law. Jesus does not just fulfill that ceremonial law. He, isn't, he is not just the fulfillment of the sacrifices. He is the fulfillment of the sacrifices, but he is the fulfillment of all of the law. All of the law, Jesus says, points to me. All of the law is about me. I am the one making restitution. I am the one bringing about reconciliation. I am the one paying for your indebtedness. Not simply your indebtedness to God, but your indebtedness to fellow man. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of all of the law. I am the one who makes it all up. I am the one that it all encompasses. It all finds itself in me. Think about this. Another very interesting point. Jesus in no place or ever or in any place or, or ever in his life violated any part of God's law. Jesus never violated God's law. He was in no way did he ever cross God's law. Did he ever break God's law? So you have three kinds of law, moral, civil, or moral, ceremonial, and civil. Jesus is obviously the fulfillment of all of them. But one thing in particular, in this passage, there are about 20 laws that you'll find in this passage, 20 specific types of law that you'll find. And in this passage, these laws all have to do with a group of people who are being oppressed. They all have to do with a group of people that are being taken advantage of. They all have to do with a group of people that the rest of the culture in that time, in that period of time, would have uh, abused or, or, or taken advantage of in some way. And so God is giving his law. Three kinds of law, moral, ceremonial, civil. Why does God give laws then? Okay, so those are the, those are the categories of laws, if you want to call them that. Then why does God give us these kind of laws? God gives us these laws I, I have for three reasons. There's probably more, but I'll give you three. The law of God restrains sin. The law of God cannot undo sin. Right? So you can't, you can't undo the sin that you've done by keeping the law. But the law does restrain sin. It ties sin up. Right? So you go, well, 
Should I lie tomorrow when I go to work because my boss is going to call me out on this project that I did? Should I lie? The law ties sin up. The law restrains sin. It keeps us from entering into sin because it ties us up and we go, ah, but I know what God's law says. I know what God's word says. I know what God does or doesn't want me to do. And so the law restrains sin. It cannot undo sin. It cannot redeem us from sin. It cannot forgive sin. But the law does restrain us from sin. It it ties us up. It keeps us from it. But there's a second thing. The law the law restrains sin. Second, the law requires a need of grace. I mean, think, think everything the book of Galatians. Okay? Think everything Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5. The, the law restrains sin, but the law also it reveals to us our need of grace. It shows us, man, how desperately we need grace. Why? Because none of us obey the law. Anybody in the room prepared to say, I've done everything that God's word says all the time? I've never violated God's word? No. We even say things like, well, no one's perfect. You ever said that? Well, nobody's perfect. Well, what do we mean by that? What we mean is we did not do all that we know we should have done. And we justify that by pointing out that nobody's ever done everything they were supposed to do. So what is the law? Well, the law was a schoolmaster, Paul says, and its job, the law was a teacher, and its job was to teach us of how desperately we needed the grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the law restrains sin, the law reveals our need for grace. But third, the law shows us what God requires from us. God, the law of God shows us what God requires from us. God says, this is what my people look like. These are the things that my people do or don't do. Okay, so with that kind of backdrop, let's jump into these 11 verses. Verse 1 down to verse 11. And these are, in particular, laws about servitude or laws about about slavery. And if we aren't careful... When we read laws about servitude, or we, le- we, we read laws about slavery, we immediately miss the teaching of the law because of the context that you and I have in terms of slavery. So we understand slavery or servitude as something that's involuntary, it's generally ethnically based, it's lifelong, it's abusive in its context. So we know, we know the cruelties that are related to the transatlantic slave trade. And because that is our context of slavery, when we read about slavery or servitude in the Bible, we immediately think in those terms. I hope everyone in the room can understand that any kind of slavery in those terms, terms that are like involuntary, ethnically based, lifelong, or abusive, any kind of slavery in those terms is wrong. Any kind of slavery in those terms is against the will and the plan of God. Any kind of slavery in those terms, it has no place among decent people, much less among the people of God. In fact, if you want to see this played out, look in verse number, tw- uh, verse number 16 of chapter 21. 
the same chapter we were in. Look down in verse number 16. Let me tell you what God thinks of that sort of slavery. Verse 16. He that stealeth a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hands, he, the man who stole or the man who bought, he shall be put to death. So if you steal someone, if you kidnapped someone against their will and you tried to sell them to someone else, or if you bought someone that was kidnapped against his will and was sold to you, you died. That's God's understanding of slavery. Right? That's God's understanding of transatlantic slavery. It has no place among the people of God. Right? So, so what's clear from, from that understanding What's clear is when God does talk of terms of slavery or when God does talk in terms of servitude or when God does talk in terms of being a servant or when God talks in terms of having a master, what's true is it cannot be what we culturally think of when we think of slavery. It, it, it can't be involuntary, against your will, ethnically based, lifelong and abusive. Those two can't be the same thing. Why? Because God has specifically said that if you're going to someone else's village and you're kidnapping their strong men and you're bringing them to your home and then making them work and work and, and abusing them in the process, that that is wrong and that has no place among the people of God. That's no place among decent people, much less among the people of God. And anyone who participates in that should immediately be put to death. Okay, so... That's very important understanding about anything moving forward from God's word about slavery. That's how God views it. God outwardly bans and he immediately condemns taking someone by force, removing them from all of their culture, from all of their family, kidnapping them, stripping them of their pers personhood and their rights, and then abusing them in the process. That, is no, that has no business among the people of God. And we, out of all people, should recognize that. The word here is actually the word abed. E-B-E-D. With, with the apostrophe over the first E. The word is abed. That's actually the, the word here. And the word abed can be translated slave, Servant, employee, but this is, a, this is a term that's going to be very familiar to you. Bondservant. Bondservant. That's how it actually plays out. In fact, you're given the, the exact instruction of what a bondservant is. Three points, we'll get out of it. First, the case for servanthood. Notice, notice every verse, or almost every verse, begins with a very big yet very small word, and the word is if. Do you see that? Look at verse 2. If, if you buy a Hebrew slave, if you buy a Hebrew servant, look at verse 3. If he came in by himself, look at verse 4. If his master hath given him a wife, look at verse 5. If the servant shall plainly say, look at verse 6. If a man sell his daughter, look at verse 8. If she please not her master, look at verse 9. If he hath betrothed her unto his son, look at verse 10. If he shall take him another wife. Look at verse 11. If he do not these three things. Okay, so almost, almost every verse, it begins with what we would understand in our language. We would understand this as case law, okay? 
So, so what God is saying is, if this happens, then you do this. If that happens, then you do that. If this takes place, this is how you should handle it. If someone does this, then you should do that. If someone says this, then you should immediately respond in this way. So if God is against the idea of slavery, of taking someone by force, putting them to work for you, if God is against that idea, then what kind of slavery must this be talking about? What kind of servanthood must this be talking about? Well, this servanthood, and you'll see this in just a second, but there was servanthood for several reasons. I'm going to give you three of them just by way of Exodus. I'll show you them. First, it could be punishment for wrongdoing. You could be put into servitude, you could be put into servanthood based on punishment for wrongdoing. In fact, go over one chapter, Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22, look at verse number three. So if the sun be risen upon him and there shall be shed, uh, there shall be blood shed for him, for he shall make full restitution. So if you do something wrong, you pay it back. That's full restitution. Look at the end of the verse. Verse number three, look at the end of the verse. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Okay, so one of the ways that you could be put into servitude, one of the ways that you could be um, put into this, this sort of service for someone else, landowner, there weren't, there weren't factories in those days in that sense, but the way that you could be put into service for someone else is you went to this guy who owned this field and you did him wrong and you have no way to pay him back. And so since you have no way to pay him back, the, the restitution, the way you made that wrong right, the way you paid that wrong back was you were actually, it was actually a form of punishment. One of the legal pen, penalties was you were indebted. Actually, the, the word, you, you'll get to this word in the New Testament, but the word is actually an indentured servant, right? That, that you were indebted to this man for the wrong that you did to him, for, for the wrong that you caused, and you were indebted to him. So your responsibility now was to work for this man in order to make up that wrong. So you, if, if you cost him three cattle, man, then those three cattle equaled five years of work. So you went and you worked five years for this man in order to pay back that wrong that you cost him. So it was a form of punishment. Number two, you could actually be sold by your parents. All the moms and the dads are like, whoa, wait, let me get in on that, right? Your parents really love you. It might sound like a cruel thing to do, but actually in their context, it really wasn't. Look at verse number seven. And if a man sell his daughter to be a maidservant. So in, in, it, don't think of it as like this cruel thing to do. It was actually done in order to give your son or your daughter a better chance at life. So because there weren't factories, because there weren't, you know, go and live the Israeli dream, be, go and work hard and be successful and show up on time and stay late and, and, and you know, do a great job and you'll climb the ladder of success, right? That's, what, that's how we understand work. But there was actually no way to do that in, in the Old Testament. There was actually, no, even when you get to the New Testament, there's really no way to climb the ladder. Like there's, there's no factories, there's no corporations, there's no companies. Education was, was very limited, if, if given at all. Right? And so what you did, you went out and you got a job, you had a trade, you went to the field and you worked. And chances are, if your family was well-to-do, then you were well-to-do. And if your family was not well-to-do, guess what? You weren't well-to-do. 
And so one of the things that a parent could do in order to give their son or daughter, man, a better chance at having more than they had in life is they could actually sell their son or daughter to a family that had means, to a family that had possessions, to a family that had, you know, fortune. They could actually sell them and he could pay a, like a, like a fee or whatever it would be and he would sell them that. And then this family would actually bring this person, this daughter, this son, they would actually bring them in as one of their own, right? So if you want to, you want to, Old Testament example of that, you think of King David and Mephibosheth, which is uh, related to Saul, who was the king before David, right? And how David brings Mephibosheth in, he finds out he's related to Saul, and Mephibosheth is scared for his life, and Mephibosheth says, oh no, the king wants to know if I'm of the lineage of Saul because he wants to come and kill me, because someone who's of the lineage of another king obviously would be a threat to the current king. And yet David brings Mephibosheth to his house, Mephibosheth, he's scared for his life, he brings him to his house, he sits him at his table, and he says, you're now my son, I'm going to treat you like my son, you, you eat at my table, you drink my food, or drink my drink, eat my food, you, you sleep in my house, you, you are now in my family. It's a, it's a perfect picture of what would be happening in, 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 in verse number seven, if a man sell his daughter. Because immediately we hear that and we're like, oh, wow, that sounds really, really weird because what kind of parent would, would do that? And yet in, that, in this culture and in this context, that was actually one of the ways that you set your kids up for success it was actually one of the ways, if not one of the only ways that you could give them something better than what you had. So all the boys and the girls in the room better be thankful for their mom and dad that they didn't live during Exodus chapter 21. It was punishment. It was, your, your parents could sell you. Third, you could actually sell yourself, right? You, you could actually sell yourself personally. Leviticus 25 speaks of this. You say, well, why would you, why would you want to do that? Why would, you want to, why would you want to indebt yourself? Why would you want to go to work it, for someone who owned land or whatever it be. Well, well it could be a, a lot of reasons, but think of, um, think of Jacob and Laban. How many remember the story of Jacob and Laban in the Bible, right? And what does Laban have that Jacob wants? Ooh, pretty girl. Ooh, right? Ooh, you have pretty daughter. Me have strong muscle, right? Me work for you. You give me her, right? It's kind of sounds like that's about how it went. And so what does Laban do? What does Uncle Laban say, right? Uncle Laban says, okay, yeah, you come work for me for seven years. And the, you, you sleep with my servants. You eat with them. You come into my house. You belong. And as you work, right, your, your, your payment will be that you can marry my, you can marry my daughter. Remember that? How many of you remember that story in the Bible? Okay. So you, you, you say, well, what, what? Possible context could you want to sell yourself personally into servanthood? Well, that would be one. Right? That, would be, that would be one situation there. But remember, remember, actually, when Jacob is working for Laban, Jacob actually is very successful. Do you remember that? If you're not careful, you kind of breeze over because there's so much happening at the end of Genesis. But you actually miss the point that at all the fields that Jacob um, worked in flourished. And all the flocks that Jacob oversaw Man, they, they multiplied over and over. And there were no blemishes in the sheep. And, and the oxen grew larger under his care than anyone else's care, right? So here's Uncle Laban who goes, well, man, I got Jacob. 
because I was going to give him my daughter. That was the price. But now look what's happening. Man, Jacob is actually being very successful. And when Jacob goes out from Uncle Laban, not only does he have two wives instead of one, he goes out from Uncle Laban, but he goes out with two wives instead of one, but he also goes out with all kinds of cattle and all kinds of grain and all kinds of food and all kinds of wealth. In fact, he uses that wealth to bribe Esau, his brother, and he sends it all ahead. You remember that story now? What is that? That's, that's exactly what this passage was talking about. It's talking about personally indebting yourself in order to do what? Well, in, in order to receive something in return, pretty, pretty, pretty wife or pretty girl, strong muscles, me work hard, me get wife, right? Or, man, you actually get better off. You know, you better off your position. You learn a trade. And maybe, maybe your parents didn't have a trade. Your parents were beggars. You, they didn't have a trade. Remember, remember Jesus and the disciples and the man who's begging? The disciples say about the man who sinned, this man or his parents? And this, this man is restrained by what? He's constrained by the circumstances that were given to him. So your parents didn't have anything to do. Your parents were beggars. Maybe they died in war. Maybe they were taken as captive. Maybe you, maybe you were living on the streets. You were young. What, what, what did you do? And you went to work for someone. Why? Because that, that provided more security for you than living on the streets. Because at least then you got a place to sleep. And at least then you went out in the field and worked. And at least then you learned to trade. And at least then you were compensated back in some way. It's true you weren't climbing the ladder becoming a manager. But it is also true that you were given some sort of thing in return. You were rewarded in some sort of way. So the case for servitude. Second, the concern for the servant. Okay, so verse 1 through 11 God's instructions about servitude. I'm, I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time on this because mo honestly, most of it doesn't really um, apply to where we are. But there are several things that are at least of interesting point. Look at verse number two. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years shall he serve. And in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. So what's very interesting is the first thing that God says about bringing a servant in. The first thing that God says is, when does he leave? I thought that was very interesting. The first thing that God is concerned about is when's this guy leaving? How about, how about that? Anybody who has employees that work for them? like uh, We want you to come and work. And most of the time we're like, we want you to stay for 20 years. God's like, the first thing you should ask someone who works for you is when are you going to go away, right? It's, one, it's a little backwards in how we do it. God, God says, that here, here's the rules. Six years he serves you. The seventh year he goes out. But what does he go out? Look, notice he goes out free. He doesn't owe you. So if it was a punishment, now he doesn't owe you anything. And if there was some sort of agreement, the only thing that is required to be given is what was ever, whatever was in the agreement. So you think of um, uh, the Jacob and Laban situation. The agreement was, was Rachel. So Rachel is who went out with him. He gets all the other possessions because Uncle Laban tried to manipulate him with Leah at the, first, at the start. And since the manipulation happened, Jacob has this leverage later on in order to gain himself something back. Second, so the first thing God's concerned about, the concern for the servant, first thing is his freedom. Him. Second thing is his family. That's verse number three, verse number four. If he comes in by, so if he comes in single, he goes out single. If he comes in married, he goes out married, right? So you don't, you don't gain any sort of rights over him in that way. You don't say, well, I get the whole family. The whole family's indebted to me because the whole family did me wrong. So now the whole family belongs to me. I'm going to send him out. He goes free. But I get to keep all of the muscle. I get to keep all of the work. God says, no, that's not the way it goes. 
It's a very specific principle. The only catch would be verse number four. Here's verse number four. If his master hath given him a wife, she and she hath borne him sons or daughters, well then the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he, so this, this servant, he shall go out by himself, right? So the, 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 this law is actually keeping two people from terrible situations coming into the servant house, right? Residing with the servants, eating with the servants, fellowshipping with the servants. So think of class of people in that kind of sense. And man, they're hanging out and this servant boy sees this servant girl and they're like, ooh, you know, she's a cute servant. He's like, ooh, he's a, he's a strong servant. Ooh, ooh, I'd like to marry him one day. And ooh, I'd like to marry her one day. I'll tell you what, I've only got you know, one more year left on my servitude and you've got five years left, so let's get married and then I can get you out of servitude sooner than, than, uh, than you have to, you know, than you have to serve, right? So we'll get out early. So it's actually kind of protected the person who had been taken advantage of. That's actually uh, what the law was given for. But, but notice, it wasn't just, okay, well, you got married, you had kids now, you know, they all stay in the house of the master. No, it wasn't just that. The man actually had a way in order to redeem them to himself that he could buy them back. He could pay the redemption price, right? So think everything in, inside of the term redemption, man, the buying back out of slavery, the buying back specifically out of the slavery of sin, that, that's rooted right here in, the, in, this, in, this, in this law, in this principle. So there's concern for his freedom, concern for his family. Notice this, there's concern for his safety. Look at verse 26. If a man smite the eye of his servant or the eye of his maid, that it perish, he shall let him go free for his eye's sake. Look at verse 27. And if he smite out the manservant's tooth or the maidservant's tooth, then he shall let them go free for his tooth's sake. Okay, so again, all the images of transatlantic slavery that you have in your mind, this is, that is not a biblical understanding. No, no, no. If you, if, you, if you were to smite your servant, guess what? Your servant goes free. This, this is against God's word. This is not the way that God wants you to interact with someone. It has no place among the people of God. They're, they're people made in the image of God. They have a specific um, um, they have a specific personhood having been made in the image of God and they're valuable as people made in the image of God and you don't get to treat them as if they were just a, a grade above livestock. That's not, that's not the way you get to treat them. It's what God is specifically giving these kind of instructions for his people. So there was freedom, family, safety. You have also this, this idea of, of concern for their protection or their concern for their, the privileges that were offered to them. That's, the, that's made up in the, in the verses, uh, betrothed her to himself or after a man, after she gives this, after he gives um, this maid to one of his sons, then she becomes to him like a daughter. So all that imagery, verse number uh, seven, verse number eight, verse number nine, verse number 10. You, you, there's literally like three ways where the maid would be protected. So she comes into his house and he thinks, wow, this, this lady, this, she might be a, a good wife for my son, but then she, you know, he realizes she has an annoying laugh and he's like, I can't really have someone with an annoying laugh marrying my daughter, you know, or marrying my son, so no, it's not gonna work. He can't just sell her back off. He can't just go, ah, too bad, didn't work out, get out of here. No, he can't do that. 
And, and he can't just go, okay, fine, well, I'll, I'll sell you to some of the Gentile nations because they'll, they'll give me whatever. They, they really like girls who have annoying laughs, right? So I'll just get rid of you that way. No, no, you can't, you can't do that. You, you can't deal with her deceitfully, is what the Bible says. You, you, can't just, you can't just brush, no, and you can't do that. You can't say, okay, well, fine, she'll come into my house. I'll just, I'll just you know, make, make her a maid. Even though she was brought in for the sake of marriage, I'll just make her a maid and she'll live out, you know, uh, maidhood for the rest of her life. And then I'm going to go get another wife and then I'll marry her because she doesn't have an annoying laugh. And so the, the instruction is, no, no, you can't do that. You actually have to care for her. You have to provide for her. And if it doesn't work out between you and her, and if it doesn't work out between you and her, you know, her and your son, if that, that's fine. But you still have to care for her, provide for her, give to her. You can't withhold from her. And that, that's, all of the, that's all of the language. The food, verse 10, the raiment, the duty of marriage. You shall not diminish. You can't, you can't take her. You can't deal with her deceitfully. And you can't, you can't treat her poorly simply because, you know, you, you, don't, you don't like the arrangement. You don't like the agreement that you got now. You can't. You can't do it that way. So God's actually speaking there. He's trying to, to, to see to it that those that come into servitude with his people are taken care of. Last one, the choice of the servant. Okay, pastor, uh, what's this mean for us, right? What's this mean for you and me? Well, there's a very interesting thing that happens in verse number six. He gives us the image of a bond servant. Because look, look at verse five and look at verse six. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master and my wife and my children, I will not go out free. You see that? It's all made up in that word love. That's very important. So, so if the servant shall, shall say plainly, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, I, I don't want to go out free. I, I don't want my time of service to be done. I enjoy what I do. I enjoy the work I have. I enjoy the relationships that I've been given. I don't want my time to be over. Well, verse 6, then, then his master shall bring him to the judges. Okay, so the whole image, the whole image there was he came in for a certain amount of time. And the first thing that you were concerned about when you brought someone into your home was when were they leaving? How, how is he going to have his freedom? So now you're caring for them. You're, you're watching over them. Maybe you even provide uh, relationships for them. They got a good place to sleep. They got clothes. Man, you, you and this man working for you, man, there's this strong love relationship. Man, you trust him. He trusts you, right? Think of, um, think of Abraham's servant and how Abraham trusts his servant so much that Abraham sends his servant out to find a wife for his son Isaac. You remember that? And Abraham's servant goes out and Abraham says, listen, you got to do this. You got to get back before I die because I want to know that my son's taken care of. So he goes out and, and, and Abraham's servant loves Abraham so much. Man, he does all of this, puts himself in harm's way and he puts himself in the way. Why? Because he loves Abraham. What kept the servant from just jumping on the horse and taking off and never coming back again? The love that he had for Abraham because Abraham had watched over him. Abraham had cared for him. Abraham had provided for him. Abraham had given him good gifts. Abraham gave him vacation time. Abraham did all these things for him, right? And so Abraham, and he won the affection of his servant so that when the opportunity for his servant to jet, when it showed up, his servant says, no way. I'm not trying to leave. I'm trying to stay because I love my master. So bring him to the judges. Because that's, that's interesting because with that now it's speaking of accountability. It's keeping someone from making an emotional decision. How many of you ever made emotion, an, an emotional decision? Let me see. Okay. 
All the wives in the room are like, yeah, yeah. He got on his knee. There was a really big diamond. I don't even know what I was thinking. My mom tried to talk me out of it, but... Okay. So what, what, this, what, this, is, what this is doing is it's saying, now, now what you need to do, instead of just making an emotional decision, step back and go get the judges. Okay, so b- before you agree to this lifelong servitude, what you need to do is you need to step back and you need to go get someone spiritually minded, and you need to let them speak into your life about the decision that you're about to make. There's some wisdom there. There's some wisdom there. Before you make this emotional decision, go get some spiritual people, let them speak into your life about the decision that you're about to make. And what that did was that kept servants from making emotional decisions, and it kept masters from making manipulating decisions. Hey, 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 are you, sh- you know, your time's up, but are you sure you want to leave? Don't you want to stay? Ha, ha, ha. On, um, am I a pretty good guy? Ha, ha, ha. But you got a nice bed? Right? So it keeps the servant from making an emotional decision. It keeps the master from making this manipulative decision. Bring them to the judges. Let the judges hear them out. And then after that, if, if he still wants to, well, then he shall bring him to the door or to the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. Now that just sounds painful. He shall, shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall serve him. So what it was, the, the image is, the image is you take the, you know, the little rod, the awl, and you bore his ear through. And that's symbolic of saying, I made a choice. I made a choice to hear the words of my master. I made a choice to hear what my master wants me to do. I made a choice to listen to him as it relates to what I want to do with my life. There's a lot of wisdom here. I don't think it's over-spiritualizing it at all to think this through about your relationship with Christ for just a second. I'm thinking and I'm talking specifically to some of the young adults in the room. Kids, college students, singles. See, as, as you grow up, your mom and dad make you go to church. It's not quite slavery, but it feels like it sometimes. Mom and dad make you go to church. Mom and dad make you read your Bible. Mom and dad make you do these things. And now, and now you have to decide for yourself. I wonder if there's, if there's been a time where you've had a verse 5 moment with your relationship with God. I wonder if there's been a time in your life where you've had a verse five moment. No, no, no. I love my master. And I love my, I love my wife. And I, I love all the things that God's provided for me. I love all the things that God's done for me. I will not go out. I will not go out. I, know I, I, I choose to live this way because I know what God's done for me. In fact, you can, you can, you can see this play out. Romans chapter 1, Paul, bondservant. Philippians chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant. Colossians chapter 4, verse number 7, Tychicus, our brother, our, our, faithful, our, our beloved brother and faithful servant, fellow bondservant. James chapter 1, James, a bondservant of God. 2 Peter chapter number 1, verse number 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. What are all of them proclaiming? What did Paul and Timothy and Epaphras and Tychicus and James and Simon Peter and Jude, Jude, what did all of them proclaim about themselves? No, 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 I'm serving God because I have to? 
serving God because I'm indebted to him in some way. No, no, I, I love God. I love Christ. I love my master and I gladly serve him when I look at all that God has done for me. All of them willingly committed to serve their master for all of their life. I wonder, since you will serve something for as long as you live, have you made the decision to serve God for as long as you live? You will serve something. But have you made the decision to serve God for as long as you live? It's interesting because Exodus is is actually not a story about freedom in the sense that we understand it. We understand freedom as the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want, however we want. And if we have that, well, then we're free. But in the Bible, freedom is the ability to do what you know you should. a, A biblical understanding of freedom is the ability to do what you should Paul says it this way. This is it, we're done. Paul says it this way. It's the love of Christ that constraineth me. Remember that verse? It's the love of Christ that constraineth me. It ties me up. It keeps me doing what I ought to do. I wonder wonder if this evening you would say, man, David Delaney, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I love Christ. I love all he's done for me. I love the price he paid for me. And when I see his love and when I see his provision, I don't serve him because I have to. No, I, I willingly commit myself to the Lord in the sight of spiritual men, in the sight of brothers and sisters in Christ. I willingly commit myself to serve the Lord with all of my life. I wonder if you've had a time in your life where you've said that. 